Okay. The property market's going off like a frog in a sock and low interest rates are certainly fueling the fire, especially given the RBA has told us we're safe from rate rises for the next few years. What do low interest rates mean, not just for real estate, but for investing across the board? For all the people who bought Bitcoin and rubbish penny stocks over the last 12 months, they would have been better saving up a deposit for a property, quite honestly, because you know what? If you can't keep your finger off the brokerage button, Go and buy a property. Go and buy a, I won't say a crappy property because you want people to lose money, but you know what? Like, go, go and get rich really slow rather than going broke really fast. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as down Download our free full or forecast report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Today we're welcoming back Scott Phillips, Chief Investment Officer of Motley Fool Australia. I listened to a recent episode of his Money Podcast and he had such a lively discussion on this topic that I thought you'd love to hear his insights into investing in the low interest rate environment. Welcome back, Scott. Always lovely to chat. Veronica, Chris, thank you. It's good to be back with you. Scott, I mean, it's I don't know where to start, to be honest, yeah, with the investment yeah. markets. We could go Bitcoin, we could go individual share trading, the property market, etc., I guess at a big view though, yep. like how is the world um, sort of functioning at the moment and how has it ch- COVID sort of changed the investment markets really? Right. So it's a really good question. We, I mean, look, we all are trying to extrapolate from the data that we have. And right now, if you look at the investment markets across the world, including property, which is obviously your expertise, not mine, but there is a real sense that coming out of COVID, we had this artificial recession, very real recession for people who suffered it, of course, but artificially caused. And- a government that, frankly, in my view at least, did the right thing by making sure it was as short and as painless as physically possible. The thing coming out of the back of that, though, is that most of us, the overwhelming majority of us, kept our jobs. Unemployment ticked up a little bit. Again, terrible for those people involved. But for the rest of us, all of a sudden, we had JobKeeper. We had stimulus. There were checks going all over the place. And frankly, we had less to spend our money on. We weren't spending our money on travel. We weren't spending our money on that stuff. So what did we do? Well, I guess we went to, you know, online and bought a whole lot of stuff. But mm-hmm. frankly, there was a whole lot of people, literally hundreds of thousands, if you believe, the stats put out by brokers and others who kind of went, hey, the share market's down. I've got this cash. Now's probably the right time. And I'm kind of glad they did. But it's brought a whole lot of people into the markets all of a sudden come April, May, June last year. And that effect still really is being felt less than 12 months later. How is it being felt? Because I'm a bit worried that, you know, it's the market's full of, I mean, and I guess what proportion have they made up as well? But, you know, the market's yeah. full of these cowboys that they've got no idea what they're doing and then they'll knee jerk out of there again. So <laughs> what, what proportion of the total share market is um, this new investor, are these mm. new investors and what what's happening with them? Right, so really good question. It, it, there's a couple of ways to, to think about this. The first is that uh, in in weight of money terms, it's obviously really, really small, right? The institutions, the retirees with their seven-figure superannuation, compared to the, the the guy or girl, 25-year-old who throws a thousand bucks at at some shares, it's kind of it doesn't really change the weight of money. But there are two big impacts that I think I want to talk about and be a little bit careful of on behalf of our listeners. 
The first is that people are getting into the market feeling like, firstly, it's easy. Secondly, it's all about these new apps and trading and making a fast bark, not helped by the GameStop palaver we went through last month. Yeah. Um, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure. So there's a whole lot of investors who kind of, frankly, are seeing this as a game. Now, I don't mind the idea of it being a game in the sense that you want to keep score, you want to do your best, you want to keep improving. We can throw the sports metaphors all over it if we want to. <laughs> but what worries me, as you rightly point out, Veronica, is easy come, easy go, right? People who are in this without any conviction will be scared out of it as soon as we hit the next slump. And more importantly, what worries me about that is they a lot of them won't come back. We know a whole heap of people yeah. finally got into investing in 2006, 2007, Finally, because they you know dragged into okay, okay, fine, the market's going. I guess I'll jump in. I guess I'll I'll invest. I guess I'll take part. Two thousand eight nine hit. They then so they bought low. They bought high. Sorry, the the crash of the GFC came. They sold low, and they went well. I'm never doing that again. And they missed the yeah. entire next decade of rally as the market recovered and, and went on to new highs. And I think that's the group I'm really really nervous for. The other thing I will say is that there's a lot of hype and, and activity pushing around smaller stocks. And so while the weight of money on BHP, Woolies, Telstra, your usual suspects, yeah. not going to make a dent. When you've got people on message boards, apps, social media, and again, this is the Wall Street bets Reddit thing, but effectively when, when that's driving the trades, some of that thinly mm. traded stuff that might trade a few thousand shares a day, it really doesn't take much for people to get caught up in that. And I'll tell you what, like the Wall Street bets thing, like the Reddit GameStop thing, the people who make money out of that aren't the average punters who think they're fighting back against the man. The, the Wall Street is on both sides of this trade and they're the ones making out like bandits while people think they're doing something meaningful, uh, but unfortunately getting taken to the cleaners. It's a really good point you make around the investor that does get burnt doesn't go and invest again. Right. Um, you know, I remember... A lot of clients I was seeing in the mid, you know, around that 2007, 2008, when I became an advisor, um, they bought a lot, had bought in say 98 or 99. Yeah, right. And they had an amazing roller coaster, you know, where they, they might have invested 20,000 pounds because I was working in the UK at the time and it was still worth 20,000 pounds, you know, eight years later. And their whole attitude in investing and taking on more risk and putting another 20,000 in. And so what most people did is just accrue money in the bank account, you know, yeah. and just keep – because cash is safer. Um, but how is that impacting people now where, you know, there's this whole Tina effect, you know, there is no alternative, <laughs> you know, leaving it in the bank. Yeah. How, how do you think that's playing out where people who have been burnt before are like, well, I can't leave it in the bank, I'm losing money, you know, um, I've got to pay tax on that, I've just got to invest. How is that playing out? And this is where – that you're right. T Tina is, is about the truest acronym around, right? You can throw your YOLOs and FOMOs around. Tina is, <laughs> Tina is the real one. There, there is, given where rates are, the RBA and other central banks are effectively entirely saying, guys, this is this is all I want you to do. There, there is no there is no sense of, um, you know, what, what would you like to do? They are saying, we want you to go and throw money at productive assets. That's exactly what they're trying to make us do. Now, you have no choice. Now, I think, so it's two things. The first is, first thing I will say is that there are a whole lot of people out there who aren't doing it. And who are just getting absolutely crushed by by poor interest in the bank. And I think those people, self-funded retirees who are risk averse, are just seeing their 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 you know retirement lifestyles absolutely destroyed. And we talk about rates and interest rates, talk about mortgage holders and 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 property buyers, and that's absolutely right. But we can easily forget those who are trying desperately yeah. to cling on to some sort of cash in the bank. Mm. The second group, I think, are the group who are saying, okay, fine, I'll do it. And and that's again, it kind of it's a bit of a spectrum, right? There's a whole lot of people who say, okay, fine. I won't have cash in the bank, but I'll go and buy some boring blue chips. I'll buy Woolies, Telstra, BHP. Yeah. Um, now, they weren't 
give you great returns. I own some Telstra shares for historical reasons that we won't go into now, but just for full disclosure, those stocks aren't going to be market beating stocks over the next 10 years, but at least they're getting something. They're getting a yield of a couple or 4%. They'll probably you know, tick along and gain a little bit. And that's not the world's worst outcome, right? But the third group are, are back to that same group. Some of them are young, some of them are old, frankly. Some of them are just saying, okay, fine, I'll invest in something. What do I invest in? And then they start to look around. And that's when the the you know the, the euphemistic brother-in-law slash cabbie slash um, you know whoever yeah. social media message board Facebook group that's the group I worry about again because they look around and go well I can't be cash what do I do someone says hey here's a great idea here's this new great thing you can jump on board and you know is it is it Tesla or Bitcoin or again there's so much of this stuff we can talk about but people yeah. are kind of they don't they don't have a choice and I think that's the group that worries me the group who are either gung ho or frankly just clueless and I don't mean that disparagingly. Who just go like well, I've always I've never done shares I've always done cash, geez now I don't really feel like I have a choice. And I'm sure you guys are saying them by the way in property as well. Yeah. Because yeah. well I guess I'll buy something because I kind of have to. Mm. Yeah. And they are just they're the patsy at the table, right? And that's the real that's the real tragedy of this whole thing. Mm. I mean, uh, just a funny story. I mean, one of the guys who's doing a bit of landscaping work at our house, um, you know, it was after his lunch break, I could hear he's chatting about investments. So <laughs> oh, I don't know what he's talking about here, just out of curiosity. Um, Anyway, he's talking about this doomsday strategy where you got to buy uh, the world's going to get no meat and you got to buy impossible foods um, <laughs> as an investment because Bill Gates owns half of you know America's agriculture <laughs> and he was so gung ho right, on his investment right, strategy right. Um, and educating all the other landscapers uh, and anyone probably the neighbours as well. Uh, but it was quite just you know because that's sort of what happens, right? There's this belief of an idea and. Um, you know, there's a lot of media and YouTube and that'll perpetuate that idea. Um, but then if you go and buy that stock and you and that's already factored into its price um, and, you know, the, the price of its, you know, 100 times earnings, et cetera, that then makes that whole investment decision maybe not worthwhile because you're paying an absolute premium for something that may or may not happen in the future. Um how does that sort of play out with, say, stocks like Tesla? Do you think, Scott? So I think that's exactly right, Chris. I think there are there are parallels with with property. I think in a lot of ways. And again, I won't try and talk on your turf, but but you know, for, for listeners, there's the properties that are already expensive, have already done well, but will keep doing well. And Veronica, you were kind of come on our podcast quite a while ago now. We t- I asked you that question of kind of if it's always location, isn't that already baked into the price? And mm. your, your your point in response was, if I'll paraphrase, correct me if I'm wrong. But effectively, yes, yes, but it's always going to be even more popular. It's always going to be the top of the pyramid that everyone wants, so it's always going to be yeah. popular. And I think so. There's two answers to that, Chris. I, I know I keep doing the two answers to everything, but but stick with me. Uh, the, the first bit is there are a whole lot of there's a whole lot of rubbish that people will get onto because they feel like it's the next big thing because they're just literally convincing themselves that's the way to go. Mm. And so that's the dangerous stuff that's gone up, but is it already in the price, as you say? There is, and I think this, I don't want to, I don't want to be all doom and gloom about shares, right? Because I think people will do really, really well investing in shares broadly now if they buy quality, if they diversify, all the stuff we always talk about. Mm. And I think that group, there are some quality businesses now that will be quality businesses in 10, 15, 20 years' time and will continue to probably outperform because they tend to. And I, I'm an Amazon shareholder. I couldn't be more bullish on Amazon right now. And again, not as a not as a pitch. Uh, I own the shares, so I'm biased. But you know, is it, is it expensive? Absolutely. Do I expect it to, to dominate the market for years to come? Yes, absolutely. And so I think it's one of those cases where expensive isn't necessarily bad. But as you say, there is the I – saw, I saw an article – I actually heard a podcast describing an article, so how's that for degrees of destruction, uh, talking about you know, Bitcoin as religion. And it was just – and to your point, Chris, you sort of alluded to that with the impossible foods thing or the, the general view. And there is 
there is a real sense the author of the article was making the point that without kind of that that general religion thing to actually cling on to People look around for worldviews, right? There's, there's been a GFC, then there's been a COVID pandemic, and people look around and go, well, what do I kind of cling to here? And so yeah. you start with those worldviews of fiat currency is dead, I'll buy Bitcoin, or Bill Gates taking yeah. over the world, I'll buy impossible foods. And again, it doesn't make them necessarily bad investments, but as you say, when when the when the kind of the, the culty kind of perspective is already in the price, you've got to ask yourself, hang on, if, if, you know, if the cult's full on this one, as I like to say, when the tide's already all the way in, which way does it go next? It can only go out. And again, you know, mm. some stocks will keep going up. So I'm not saying everything that's gone up will go down. That's not how shares work or property. But I do think you want to be a little bit careful because over time, I think there's a there's a very good chance that some of that stuff that is just full of hype, full of hope, full of belief. And you mentioned 98, 99, Chris. I mean, this is not .com. I don't want to say all tech is rubbish, but the same sorts of suspend disbelief that applied then is applying to some stocks, some investments now, including I would argue things like Bitcoin, uh, and I think that's the that's the big question. It's fad versus foundations, isn't it? Right, exactly. That's all it is, and and it happens in property. It's happening in shares, and it's and it's that it's wishful thinking wrapped up in I don't really you know I don't really want to work for the rest of my life. You know it, it, how can I right. how can I get out of this? <laughs> yep. Bitcoin is amazing though because. I've, you know, as an investment, you know, been an advisor for a long time. I'm, like you say, foundations, you know, what is what's stopping another cryptocurrency becoming, you know, it, what's, and I, I feel like I've been proven wrong. And this is an interesting <laughs> point, so, right? And I, I, I saw it go up to 25,000 and it dropped to 8,000, right? And human ego sort of kicks in. You're like, yeah, I knew what I was talking about, right? Or what I was thinking. I didn't, <laughs> I tried not to put a belief out there too much. Um, but now it's at 70,000, let's say Aussie, and then it dropped just yep. recently. And, you know, that's where that sort of second, they call it the head and shoulders, don't they, Scott, or something, where a lot of people who thought they should have invested now invest because they think, well, I've missed the boat, but I can still see a rise. And so I think Bitcoin's in that really interesting phase where it's had a second sort of rise, and that's creating a lot of people who wished out on that first wave and now buying it the second wave. Um and that's a really dangerous point if things turn around because they can fall a long way on that second drop. Is that what you sort of see happening potentially? Yeah, I think that I think that's I think that's pretty true, Chris. I, look, I think here's here's the problem with predictions generally is um, there's an old quote: the market can stay irrational longer than you can remain solvent, right? And it's a, and it's a, and it's a reminder and a, and a warning not to try and second guess the market, particularly when your money's on the line. If you need to, again, in the sense of solvency, that, that's a warning against margin and other things. But the broad idea is, you know, for as long as the belief holds, I mean, think, like, here's the easiest example. So people bag Bitcoin. I'm, a, I'm, I'm not a Bitcoin fan. I'm not a, uh, an Uber bull, uh, Uber bear, sorry, but I'm not an Uber bull either. Here's the thing about, about that. So gold, for example, right, has a value. Why? Because we all agree it's worth something. If tomorrow we decided that gum leaves or grains of sand or something else was was our preferred store of value slash show of wealth, then gold will all of a sudden be worth nothing because no one would bother trying to mine it. There, you know, there are, there are you know hundreds of hundred plus elements in the world. We choose gold as our thing and say, well, that's what we think it's worth. Now, you kind of can pick it back to the cost of production to some degree. So yes, it has some fundamental underpinnings. Mm. But but we kind of like gold because we kind of like gold because we kind of like gold. And there is a general view in the market that if things get rocky, will you go to gold? And so for as long as that fiction holds, it becomes its own reality. I don't want to get too esoteric, but as long mm. as everyone believes gold is worth something, then it's worth something. And so the yeah. thing about Bitcoin is I wouldn't be at all surprised if it's worth $100,000 in five years' time. 
well, so I, I shouldn't say worth. I shouldn't be surprised if it was selling for $100,000 in five <laughs> years' time. If everyone says, hey, we love this thing called Bitcoin because we love it because we love it, because you love it because I love it, so if I love it, you love it, we all love it, let's call it Bitcoin. That's how this thing happens, right? And this, it could last mm. for centuries like gold or it could disappear flash in the pan like you know Esperanto, the, the, the made-up language that was supposed to replace all the other languages in the world because it was somehow better. Um, these, things, these things are fa- functions of faith and gold yeah. has sustained Frankly, dollars are exactly the same, right? Uh, you know, my $5 note's worth 25 cents worth of plastic. I just know I can exchange a $5 note for a can of Coke or for half an hour of labor yeah. or for whatever else. Uh, so to some degree, that's kind of the Bitcoin story is I wouldn't be surprised if it's worth this much or more, sorry, again, selling for this much or more <laughs> in five years' time. But that's different from can you fundamentally value it? Can you make a, a, a foundational case, to use Veronica's word, for you know the price no you absolutely cannot all you can all you can assume is if the people who love it now still love it in five years time and if even more people love it then maybe it's worth something but that's kind of you know i work for the motley fool but that's the greater fool theory right hopefully someone will pay me more for it that's not an investment idea it's not an investment thesis it's not solid foundational investing so here's a question for you when interest rates are high is there less risk taking going on in investment circles that's a that's a great question so i think um what worries me about interest rates um moving around is it changes the expected returns of stocks. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things people have said to me so many times, hey, now COVID's over, what should I buy? I'll give you, mm-hmm. you your answer, I promise. Uh, the, the answer was, the, the answer I normally give is, you should have asked me that six months ago while COVID wasn't over because once it's over, it's already priced in, right? So yeah. the kind of bounce back stocks have already bounced back. By the time you're asking the question, by the time the, the coast is clear, it's gone. And so to your point about interest rates, as those rates change, the question is not so much what happens now, but what happened before we got to this point. In other words, setting up for success is saying, well, hang on, this is what the future may or may not look like, or this is what the interest rates may or may not do. And by the time rates are up, asset prices should be lower. By definition, that's, that's how this that's how the maths works, mm. right? Uh, and so we should expect that. Now, by the time we get there, when it gets to rates get to 5%, someone says, well, what should I do now? I'll say, well, actually, you should have been doing it a few years back. So it's a kind of, it's a, it's a roundabout way to answer your question, Veronica, but mm. it's kind of a, a case of, you know, if and when rates go higher, the time to prepare for that would have been previously. And there are ways, investing-wise and in shares in particular, higher rates generally means higher inflation. That's certainly the RBA's absolute explicit argument or, or, or preference or decision or, or warning. And so at that point, you want to be investing in assets now that have the ability to withstand or benefit from that inflation when it comes because that will come with higher rates and then around and around we go. So you made a uh, tweet recently, I had to do with a stalk, um, <laughs> that you wouldn't buy an investment property today. You'd buy a house to live in. Why is that? <laughs> I, should have, I should have timed my tweet more carefully, shouldn't I? Sorry, guys. Um, so here's, here's I, 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 it was Twitter, right? So, so bear, bear with me with the number of characters. Um, I, think it's, I think it's probable that the... Yields that we're getting on the average. So these are averages right now. You guys don't do averages. And that's why this is important to distinguish. That's why I'm saying it's a tweet rather than an individual investment property advice. <laughs> As a general rule, I would be remarkably surprised if the housing market writ large across Australia beats the, the share market over the next five or 10 years. Given what we just said about interest rates, given where yields are, given where prices already are, given serviceability and affordability, I don't... I can't conceive of a scenario in which short of rates going negative and and by a long way and staying there, I can't conceive of a scenario where house price growth is sufficient to to deliver market beating as in stock market beating returns 
over the next, say, 10 years from here. And I'm having on a you, dollar per dollar. So I'm going to invest $100,000 into a share yep. for 100000 in property. Yep, correct. So again, av- averages, right? So average shares, average property. There are some terrible shares, right, which people should never buy. So when I say property, I'm talking about the market. When I say shares, I'm talking about the market. There'll mm-hmm. be some great shares, some terrible shares, some great property, some terrible property. But if, if the yields are what they are, if the capital growth is what I think it's just fundamentally likely to be because of the affordability of the population, um, accessibility, all that stuff that goes with it. And again, you guys may have a very different view. I'd love to hear the, the rebuttal, by the way, if you've got one. Um, but I, I just don't, I don't see how the maths can work over an extended period from here. Um, the stock market is now at 8%, 9% a year on average. For housing to keep doing that, if wages stay at 1, 1.5%, I don't know what gives. And so, again, as, as, at, at a total level, I don't know how the algebra works that in 2030, we're sitting here with, with property having outperformed shares. Uh-huh. I guess, um, you know, if, if it was not really a fair sort of argument, property versus shares, because, um, you know, you don't really go and buy $100,000 of property. <laughs> exactly. Grand in cash. Yeah. I guess the problem is, is with investing in property is that most people are leveraging it extremely you know, at higher levels, totally. they're either yeah. borrowing 80% yeah, and putting in, but even still, they're probably borrowing every dollar and paying off their mortgage. Um, and so, you know, they could be getting 10 times the leverage, so a million dollar property versus $100,000 in shares. Yeah, and for sure. That's, I guess, the, the hard thing to sort of compare one versus the other. That's absolutely true. And the other thing is to think about, so it gets more complex, right, without, without you know, trying to draw graphs on, on audio. Um Obviously, as you pay off that property, as you pay down the principal, in theory, you'd be investing in shares at the same kind of rate. If you, again, if we're talking about dollar for dollar, so you're talking about the deposit, as you say, Chris, you're sort of taking the leverage up front with property, with, with and then you're paying it off. So you're kind of not building yep. the you're not building the leverage. You're effectively paying back the equity. Now, again, there's strategies around doing different things, and I know all that sort of stuff. But if you kind of you know take it to a, the, the life of a of a loan, and then you think about it, what well, I might have invested in shares in monthly installments slash you know quasi repayments. Um, the maths gets really messy, and you got to draw it on a graph, and it's you know it's all over the place. Yeah. You guys, you guys know this stuff, um, but yeah. So, like, I think that's the that's the biggest challenge, right? Over that period of time, because you're you're only getting one, you get, you're taking all your property up front, you're buying shares, hopefully with the same amounts over time. And it's the old argument of what's better. I I think the the leverage is a huge huge difference, right? And I think that's yeah. super super important. I would never ever want people to borrow money to buy shares because. The chance of a margin call, if the market when the market is volatile, it's just too messy to, to think about it. I mean, the margin calls in, even in March, April last year, uh, during that yeah. really short-lived but massive forty yeah. percent drop, a whole lot of people were wiped out. Were, the shares were called away from them, and they missed the recovery because they, the banks have said, "Thanks, we'll have the money back." Yeah. Um, and so that's you know, it's a re, it's a really big advantage property has. And I've I'm not anti-property guys. Like I think I said this last time where I was with you, I I have regularly said to my wife, "Hey, we should just keep an eye, look around." I'm not a I'm not a shares guy, as in I'm not an anti-property guy. I know more about shares. I think my, my gut feel is still that I think shares outperform, but I could be wrong. Um, but again, as, as you guys rightly said, there'll be properties that do even better. There'll be shares that do even worse. Um, so averages aren't super helpful except for, I think, and this is where we kind of go back to the, the new investor, right? Someone saying, hey, do I buy an investment property with no knowledge or shares with no knowledge? Frankly, I'd rather than buy an ETF of shares than, than, than pick their own property off the bat, off right? I agree. Right? I, I think that's the, that's the big one. I percent agree. And in fact, I was only talking to Chris about this yesterday, that in, in a way I would love to partner with a financial planner in, in the business 
because the amount of people that I encourage to go to get advice because they really don't have enough money to buy a quality property and they want to invest. And the problem is, of course, financial planners, they're not valuable enough as a client to a financial planner, um, which is probably why they should subscribe to Motley Fool, right? (laughs) (laughs) Because, I mean, obviously that's one of the benefits of your service. You know, it's for those people that aren't attractive enough as a client for a financial planner who's any good. And... And that is a real issue that people look to property as being safe and it's a it, and they and there's pros and cons obviously you know if you buy a really good property asset then you know it is pretty safe right but then how do you know what a good one is and if you can't afford a good one you know you're you're right. sticking all your eggs in one basket you don't get to dollar cost average you you are borrowing a shitload of money and uh, you know what i mean and 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 you don't have that uh, liquidity. You don't have the ability to sell just a little bit of it if you if you need to. You don't get to to just take your time researching one thing at a time. I mean, it's there's just loads of pros and cons for both uh, both sides of this argument. Absolutely. And I'm an unusual property person that says to people you shouldn't buy property. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, in different ages, right? So if you're in the 40s, or you know, potentially if you've got you know limited equity and you've still got lots of leverage because you're still earning great incomes, then maybe yeah, let's go down property route. But when you start getting to your 50s and closer to retirement, the argument for property over shares, especially when you've got lots of equity. Um, potentially this is where we go back to your conversation, Scott, is over that 10 years before retirement and those 10 years in retirement, are the returns going to be better on shares? You know, you haven't got such a long runway and um, hence why the share argument starts to win more and more. But maybe the the 20 or 30-year-old who knows what they're doing, who have got better understanding of one property to another and is getting help, um, maybe they're better off to look at, you know, a longer-term property decision. So age is a huge factor in you know, what's a better decision. That, for that is a massively important one, right? Age and then, as you say, the leverage that kind of come, there's implied with that. Um, and as you, as you say, the, the average, you know, for all, for all my comment about investment property, for, for all the people who bought Bitcoin and, you know, rubbish penny stocks over the last 12 months, they would have been better saving up a deposit for a property, quite honestly, because you know what? A lot of people, and, you know, again, you say, Veronica, you're a, you're a property person, they don't buy property. I'm a shares guy saying some people don't buy shares. You know, we, mm. we recommend individual stocks. A lot of people either shouldn't do it at all. Like if you can't keep your finger off the brokerage button, go and buy a property. Go and buy a, I won't say a crappy property because a lot of people lose money. But you know what? Like go, go and get rich really slow rather than going broke really fast. If, if, if that's if you buy an average property, that's better than buying crappy shares. If you buy great properties, better than buying average shares and, and same in reverse. <laughs> but I think that's, that's true. Buy, buy an ETF or buy property or just save yourself from yourself, right? For, for a lot of people, as you say, the the lack of, and this is, you know, you guys will have a view on this too, but as a financial advice, I think that's that's a really good point, right? The, the, the clients who need the help most are the ones who are unfortunately just not, you know, easily serviced by people mm. who are highly paid, highly qualified, who simply are worth more per hour than those people. You know, if you, if you give a 23-year-old great financial advice, they spend a year, uh, sorry, a lifetime following, that, that is worth squillions to them. By the time they've got the money to pay, they're 55, they've made 84 different mistakes and you're trying to you're trying to save them from themselves between now and retirement. It's a it's a messed up system, right? But it's it all we've It's a real problem. And I think what you say there about if you're trigger happy as well, if you can't keep your eye off your frigging your balance, your share. Oh, seriously, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, you yeah. know, my my partner and I, we, we actually did, um, we're using, well, we're investing in one of the Motley Fool, um, what's that one that you released in January, mm. the Oh, it's a small cap one. I can't very kind. It. Was it Rising Stars possibly or um, Discovery? Oh 
Discovery. 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 So, oh, nice. so, so we did decide we we followed your little webinar. We went, yeah, that makes <laughs> sense. Let's give it a shot. <laughs> so we've done that. And Tell me you're doing well. Tell me you're doing well. This is, I hope this isn't a, a big, a big no, expose kind of podcast. It's okay, really good. shitty. But that, <laughs> the, thing, the funny thing is that she keeps looking and I'm going, will you stop looking? We made oh, a commitment no. to invest for five years, yeah, right? Exactly. We made exactly. a commitment. We looked at it. We, we agree with the thesis. We, we, we said this is, you know, we're prepared to invest a certain amount of money in this and, and, and stop looking. I'm not yeah. even looking, you know. <laughs> I bought I like into it. good the, advice. Good advice. You know, I bought into the belief. I bought into the research. I bought into the the the, the thinking behind it, and I put a, a certain amount of money that's not hurting me too much, and I'm fine, you know. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, it's hilarious. And then because we actually invested, we're using a different bank share platform to the one I use for my other investments. Okay. Yeah. Like, you know, we were getting a, a daily email <laughs> to get oh, the notifications and get that off. I don't want to see it. You know, and that, you know, and that's the thing, mate. So this is, and this is again where when you talk about shares, right? It's really tough for people. If you see, I'll, I'll name them, Comsec. I'm a, I'm a Comsec customer. Um, they they refer to their their customers as traders the entire way through every piece of information you read. They never mention investors. Mm. You know why? Mm. Because, and I don't blame them, but they get paid for people trading, not people yeah. investing. Yeah. I trade, I, I might buy or sell shares four times a year, maybe if I'm lucky. Like, you know, I'm into this every day, but I'm I'm doing it for the long term. So I'll save some money every every month with my pay and every, you know, couple of months I'll go and buy something. I mm. rarely sell. I'm a terrible customer for them. Yeah. They don't want, they want, they want me to be hyper trading, as you say, checking yeah. end of day statement, putting a trade on 1001 tomorrow morning, going round and round and round the circle, paying them over and over and over again. Mm. That, like financial advice, the brokerage model doesn't support quality long term investing because the money's not there. You know, there, there's no value in complex enemy. Let me educate you and help me, yeah, help me help you trade less, trade less frequently, buy quality businesses. It's just, it's just, there's no incentive for them to do that. And I don't blame them necessarily, but. As, a, as an investor, as a punter, as a consumer, that's the stuff we've got to be careful of, right? Because, again, like Spruikers in your game, uh, mm. plenty of people, the way, the way to make money, if you if you are less than uh, on the level, you can make so much more money doing it dodgily than doing it properly, right? And, and doing it properly is expensive and it make, yeah. you make less money. Hopefully, over time, you make more because your customers love you and hang around. But, it, you know, it, it's, it's actually harder to do it in this space legitimately than to take the easy option and, and screw people over. It's so true and it's just that's just exactly the same as you say, it's exactly the same property. And of course in a low interest rate environment, you've got people chasing returns and feeling, you know, like I'm not doing well or people go to the barbecues yeah. and compare, yeah. you know, how oh, the yeah. latest yeah. trades done and all that sort of stuff. You go, I'm missing out on something. I need to get out there and do something. And it's yeah. Yeah. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. But interestingly enough, though, in the property side of things, I mean, investors borrowing is still lagging behind where it was, say, back in 2016. Have you got recent data on that, Chris? Oh, I think it's definitely happening. So we can see that, uh, like when interest rates went under 2%, um, the attitude to take on debt really shifted. You know, the confidence of people to take on a bigger mortgage. Um, and also when you start to see fixed rates are 
three, four, five years, you know, sub 2%. Mm. Uh, people are like, well, that gives me the confidence because A, I can get it for a really good rate and B, I know it's for the longer term and the RBA is telling me it's not going up. Um, and so all that really just started to sink in and people said, well, actually, you know what, I'm willing to take on a bigger mortgage. And that's what's really driving the market is people are willing to use all their borrowing capacity, especially because the market's hot. Mm. They're saying, well, if I don't use it, A, I'm not going to get a property that I love because it's expensive and B, I won't buy. Mm. And so if you get add up all this credit growth, which you can see all the RBS stats and ABS, I mean, uh, all the AFG um, reports, Aussie home loans, all these sort of big aggregators are showing that lending's going through the roof. Investors, I think, won't happen. It just showed it last week, but I think you'll find that, you know, maybe 2021, 2022, they always come late to the property market rather than the home buyers. Um, I think you'll start to see a, a big sort of uplift now because we're starting to see people come to us who are saying, I'm thinking about buying an investment property or I know I've been thinking about this for years. I really need to do it. And there's a little bit of FOMO for investors a little. as well. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think it's it's kicking off. Not as not like it was 2014, 2015 where investors were driving the market. It's a completely different sort of world. What I am seeing though is it's coming from your world, Scott, where I've seen a lot of clients in the tech industry, um, yeah, maybe they work at, you know, Amazon you mentioned before or Salesforce or Facebook or Google or, you know, um, and they've got or Atlassian, for example, um, and uh, they work in that industry and they've also invested in the industry because they've been yeah, around tech. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's interesting, a lot of their personal wealth is flowing back to property mm. because they're using their three, 400 grand or a million or two million that they've made um, and they're using that for a deposit. Um, so how do you think that at a big sort of, you know, as equity markets perform, how do you think that that then flows directly back into the property, you know, because people want to buy lifestyle, mm-hmm. buy homes? That's a really great question. Actually, I, I, the other thing I guess I'd be I'd be fascinated and uh, maybe I'm <laughs> rather answering a question I'm asking you on, but there's also the question of kind of what and where are they buying, right? We've seen mm. so much decentralization working from home to the extent that remains true or, or, or changes over time. That changes where and how people are buying, what they're buying. Because you mentioned lifestyle. I mean, I'm in, I'm in the Southern Highlands of New South Wales, about ninety minutes sort of south southwest of Sydney, and um, and we're seeing things like you know the average time on market halve. Yep. Um, they pro- property up the road went in thirteen days. Um, now that's not. I mean that's probably impressive anyway. But you know when we moved here five years ago, properties were on the market for three months, mm. and so you know there, there is there is a meaningful shift there. I think to your point about so there's a kind of a, a tangent. Your point about the, the kind of shares doing well and going back property. I think that's it. I think there's a you know there's a lot of people who know that particularly for owner-occupiers and, and for investors to some degree, that idea yep. of how I've made some money and, you know, there's still that thing of, hey, you know, if I can pay a mortgage off, um, yep. then they can't take it away from me. And that's, you know, as much as I live in the land of shares and and shares are kind of abstract, I mean, that we try and run people, they are real businesses. You own shares in Woolworths, you own a part of that business as, as tiny as it yeah. might be. There's still that sense of, hang on, I know it gets traded under a three-letter code, six hours a day, the ticker's going up and down, up and down. To Veronica's point, I get the email at the end of the day telling me what's going on. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's on the stock market, reports at night. And it's, you know, it's a real it's a real disconnection from, you know, if you had to own a piece of Woolworths and literally go somewhere and say, hey, I've got this bit, would you like to buy it from me? Or what, is, what does it do? If you had to talk about the business rather than just the stock ticker and, and the price, it would change how people do it. I think there is a real drive to say, I mean, you know, we've got a mortgage on our place here. We're paying it down as quickly as we can. And so as much as, again, while I say, you know, Good I'm point. a shares guy, I'm happily paying down the mortgage and I'm getting a lower, I think I'll get a lower average return because I'm an owner-occupier, right? So I'm saving yeah. the I'm saving the mortgage rate, which is tiny. 
uh, rather than going and getting hopefully eight, nine, ten percent elsewhere. But it's a lifestyle choice. I think that's that's the bit that matters. And I think when people think about assets, you know, understanding what the asset is, how people are using it, how they're valuing it, um, literally valuing it as in dollars and cents, but valuing it as in how they feel about it. Those things matter a whole lot. I'm not surprised that you know the Atlassian guys are buying you know mega mega mansions because you know why wouldn't you? It comes down to how am I enjoying my life? What am I doing with the money? Where is it going? And that's the good thing for property. I think over time is as the economy continues to improve, people are prepared to say, "Great, I'll use some of that wealth and I'll go and buy myself a place to live, or I'll go and buy myself an investment property." And that puts property as a market, good property in particular, in a really good place. Well, particularly if you're buying to live in. I mean, then you get the tax yeah. benefit when you go to sell as well. I mean, that's that's quite lovely but um but there's you know you work hard you want you know there's that there's apart from lifestyle around buying your own home there's that sense of you know well look at me look what i've achieved accomplishment yep yeah absolutely yeah you can't put yeah well you can put a dollar figure on that but (laughs) (laughs) well a hundred percent that's a it's a key point right like if you do really well in business right and you sell your business for 20 million like Ultimately, it's like winning lotto, right? That same sort of oh, thing. Totally. Would yeah. you, if you won lotto, would you? What would you do? Number one, most people want to buy a nice house. Yep. Um, and so, as sort of people do better, or they've got a property, does sort of drive lifestyle that a lot of people want. And I think you made a really good point, Scott, because I've seen the exact same. When people have got that asset and they're happy in the community and they've got a house they can grow into, um, and they're not really always trying to trade up, they're not into that sort of. Uh, mindset or they don't have that desire for a nicer space um, they do go on the opposite they go just pay down their debt mm. um, and that does come at a detriment of potentially what they could have kept that money doing I kept that in those shares or mm-hmm. kept investing in the market they become very conservative and becoming debt free and, and a lot of people you know it feels great because you're paying off your mortgage um, but they don't really understand potentially the investment sort of consequence of, of you know by taking that risk I, I think that's right. And I think I think it goes both ways too. We got a, we got a pretty young team at the full, and you know, I, for better or worse, I'm one of the older heads. And uh, and it is that it goes both ways, right? The first is to remind those older people that hey, don't don't give too much away. There there is more to be gained outside that. I.e., um, you know, reinvesting to improve your life. That that there's an opportunity there. Mm. On the flip side, I keep telling the team, you know, yes, when you're 25, all you want to do is maximize your return. When people get a certain age and they're saying, you know what, I've made a decent amount of money, I've saved hard, worked hard, my business, I've sold my business, I've got an inheritance, whatever I've done, you know what, maximum returns aren't the only thing that I'm looking for anymore. Yes, I'd like to make yeah. some money. Yes, I'd like them to go up. Mm. But gee, once you, I don't know what the, I don't know what the magic number is these days. I imagine it's probably seven figures, but whatever it is, at some point you, you stop and think, hang on, uh, it's more it's more important for me not to lose this now than to maximize the return yeah. from it. And that yeah. changes that changes mentalities, and that's. You know, again, why I get, you know, the investment property idea of like, well, I've got it, it's there, it doesn't go away now, and it's all mine. That I mean, that's super valuable, right? When you you don't have the volatility and, and, and worry of, you know, the share market yeah. fell 38% in March. Do I really want that again when I'm 58, 62? Probably not. Now, you probably should anyway, because it's worth it long term. But, you know, that's the psychology of investing, no matter what the asset, and that's super important. I'm curious, Chris, what you were saying just then. So basically when interest rates are high, we should look at paying down our debt on our home. But when they're low, we should look at investing that money instead. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, I mean, because you, especially on your home loans, if it's 5% mm. after tax, you know, that's like an investment return of, say, getting 7 or 8 or even 9 Yeah. Um, you know, depending on the yield versus the growth component of it. So, you know, that's a pretty decent return. Stock markets have to be growing quite strongly, mm. but if they're too um, maybe the the cost you need the returns need to be four percent, and 
Um, that's pretty easy to beat a potentially Scott over, say, five, 10 years, you know, investing yeah, that's, in the market. Yeah, that's right. So you just got to be very careful being either too aggressive or too conservative. Yeah. Um, and like Scott says, it's not all about trying to make more money, but ultimately it can give you more options, you know, whether that's giving to family or kids or society, et cetera. Um, and just protects you, you know, you could have a health issue, right? Your income could go for the next 20 years. So it's also protecting your lifestyle. So I guess it's, um, we see people at different, you know, all different risk profiles and um, yeah, it's just the behavioral side of investing is just very fascinating, isn't it? Scott, I think it was one of your podcasts I was listening to talking about really how much you should keep in cash because, yeah. you know, you don't want to invest every cent because what you're talking about there, Chris, is keeping a buffer in case things go wrong. So there's there's sort of like a bit of a rule of thumb, isn't there, Scott, as to how much cash is advisable to keep? Yeah, and it's it, there's a, there's an easy rule of thumb. It's a slightly more complex one, which I'll give you. It's only a little bit longer, so bear with me. Um, generally, we would say to people, because the share market is volatile, uh, I use the example, if you had to settle on a house on March 30 last year, you had you had forty percent less money than you did at the end of February or the beginning of February to settle that yeah. house, right? So you don't want to have that that capital at risk if you know you need the cash. Mm. Nor do you want to be necessarily for even if it's smaller amounts, you don't want to be forced to be de- selling out of the market in April or March to pay the travel bill or replace the car. So generally yeah. speaking, I would say you don't want capital in the market that you need in the next three to five years, probably three is enough for most people yeah. um, because yeah. you don't want to have that flexibility. If I'm going to replace my car and it's going to cost me 45 grand, then I don't want that 45 to be 20 and I end up having to sell twice as many shares to buy the car when the old clunker dies, right? So yeah. that's that's super important. Now, I, I'll carry it that this is a slightly longer bit. If you have an income you're generating from it, and no matter whether that's shares or property or artwork or whatever, um, if, you've got, if you've got cash flow, you don't need to necessarily consider the capital the same way. So if I know I'm getting... I don't know, 15 grand a year in dividends or rent or something, you know, after expenses. Yeah. And I've got to replace my $45,000 car. Well, you know, I know that cash is coming in, so I don't have to hold, keep the whole amount outside it, the investment universe. I can mm. have some of it in cash and some in the market because I know I'm getting a, a cash stream, if you like, over time. So, yeah, three years of expenses outside is the gold standard. But being mindful that if you're getting a decent enough cash flow from your investments, you don't need to pretend that doesn't exist. You can kind of trade it off a little bit. You might have a year, year and a half of cash outside, knowing that you're going to get a, an income flow, cash flow, to help offset any money you might need for those emergencies or, or planned bills. Got it. Another interesting um, thing we've seen is, uh, you know, COVID's been a great opportunity for people to save money, just to refresh their life. Yeah. Um, you know, no more partying on weekends, no more holidays to the Greek exactly. islands. Um, you know, people have had to, you know, have been snapped out of that habit, right, of, you know, going to restaurants or work trips to the city, just going out for a nice lunch. Like living that sort of high-consumption lifestyle is expensive. Um, and people on great incomes, but they're also spending money, you know, very freely pre-COVID. And so we found a lot of people have just, been able to save an enormous amount of money, more than they even thought was possible in the last six to 12 months. That's allowing them to have a home deposit, et cetera. But a lot of them will be going to someone like you, Scott. Are you seeing a huge influx of those people who, you know, should have been investors years ago, but have just never been able to save any money because they just like to spend money and enjoy life? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And that is, that's, a, that's a large amount of what funded many people who joined the market for the first time in April, May, June, was all yeah. of a sudden this money they kind of had because they saw shares were cheap and they kind of 
what, what, what I, I'm at least a little bit pleased about is they kind of realized that when she has a chip, it's a good time to buy. So that was kind of yeah, important. They, they got that message. That was good. And then they had some cash, as you say. Household savings ratios are you know, upwards of 20% last numbers. I saw Christian made something more recent. But, you know, there's so much cash just, just filling people's wallets. And again, we're talking on average, right? So there are people listening who are out of work. And I don't want to ignore those people when we talk averages and totals. But the reality is there is so much cash sloshing around the bank accounts right now that people are having the choice. A, as you say, they're not, not spending as much. And B, the, the various payments and subsidies and everything else. Just about there's, there's more money around. And so people are... Well, firstly, they're buying a truckload of t- TVs and computers and God knows what for every online store you can find. But the, the rest of the money is actually sitting around and so they are having a chance to invest mm. it. Um, now, some of that is probably going into, by the way, house prices and share prices. And that's a double-edged sword again because they're investing at, in- at increasingly higher prices. Yeah. So we want to be a little bit careful that we're not – you know, sowing the seeds of our own destruction. Or, I mean, I'm being, I'm being you know, a bit liberal there, but you know what I mean? Where, where to some degree, all that, all that cash, while it makes it easier and more possible to do, also adds to the demand side of the equation, pushing prices up. So you've got to pay the piper at some point. But yeah, absolutely, there is definitely many more people and much more cash available being put into investing. And the short-term recency bias where- <laughs> Yes, um, exactly. You know, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who say invested in 2009, um, which could act similar as- 2020 in April, right? That yep. real drop in the market and massive bounce back in a short period where people just think, oh, wow, this is easy. I've made such great returns over such a short period. Um, I'm, yep. I'm, a, I'm a, you know, a freak, you know, the best share investor going totally. around and that um, encourages them to put more money in and it, it, it kind of creates really bad long-term habits, do you find, Scott, with how their philosophy with investing in shares um, sort of, yeah, that is such a really important point. There's a, there's the old saying, the rising tide lifts all boats, and it does. And so it was really hard to lose money investing between April and December last year. Like you really had to work hard to find something <laughs> crappy enough to lose money on because the market was going up. And so, you know, when the market recovers, and don't forget, it fell 40%. It's almost back. But when it falls 40, it's got to grow by 60-odd to get back to the same level, right, because we were off a new base. Yeah, so exactly. people out there have made 20, 30, 40. If you made 15%, you still feel like a genius. Even if you yeah, lost yeah. to the market dramatically, the market's up 50, 60, you're up 15, you think, hey, how good am I? I'm a genius. This is great. This is easy. Um, and so, yeah, look, I mean, I'm glad they are making some money. I'm glad they're, I'm glad if it helps them get the bug. I'm glad if they, if it's the, you know, if it's the gateway to a life of proper investing, then that's awesome. But as you say, I sometimes wish for people their first investment doesn't go too well because it, it saves that hubris, right? Because next time, you reckon, the, you reckon the Bitcoin buyers and the GameStop buyers aren't people who made a few dollars and went, oh, this is easy, I can keep doing this stuff. Um, you know, everyone who made money on Tesla or Bitcoin because they like the cars or because Bitcoin's kind of cool or because they hate governments or some other tangential reason, they're the ones when, even, even if Tesla is worth 10 times as much in 10 years' time, they're going to sell out between now and then at some point when their shares go down because- well, the cars are cool, but I'm losing money, so that's terrible. So I'm out. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. And so that, that's they're the ones that really, I, I can almost, I can almost feel them slipping through our fingers, right? As an industry, and not that I want to make money from them. I, I you know, I mean, I'd be nice if they want to join our services, as Veronica has. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but it's more than that, right? It's, I don't want to lose those people who invest. I don't want their first experience to be really, really exactly. crap. And they kind of go, well, that investing thing was terrible. I'm never doing that again. Um, it was I mean, like the yeah. property flippers that you know they did the first right, one exactly. really well, and the second one was like, why did I lose money on that? <laughs> oh well, because you don't really know what you're doing. You just think yeah, you're yeah. a hero because the first one went well. So Mark true. Did the job for you or something? But it makes me laugh. The rising tide lifts all ships. You go, yeah, it's true, but they don't all lift at the same rate, you know. And, and and I think you just highlighted that. And the other thing is that there's the other side of that that um, 
you know, those little sayings that, and then when the tide goes out, you see who's been, you know, swimming with their pants yes. down. And <laughs> it's, it's opportunity cost is the thing that people just don't, the relativity. And mind yep. you, all the data is there for people to see how they perform versus the market in the share, in a share sense, but isn't so much in a property sense. And you get this thing with property is I made a gain and it's like, well, relative to what? I mean, yeah. what, what return was that over how many times? What else Correct. could you spend the money Correct. on? The, the question never gets asked, but yours, what you're suggesting there is a question doesn't get asked too much in the share market either. No, I think that's right. I think, you know, because, and, and the data's not super easily available. You know, it's easy, more easy than property. But if someone said to you, well, like I started investing on the 12th of April, and I said, what was your lords then? Mm. They might know, probably couldn't work out how to find it. And to be fair, it's not super yeah. easy to find. And so unless you've actually set out to do that um, and you've kept track, it is hard to do. Now, I'm going to say one thing that's just controversial, right? Because yeah. we're, we're all here to maximize investment returns for our respective clients. That, that's, well, because uh, you're there to help people, you know, protect the downside and stuff as well. But broadly speaking, within whatever framework they've got, we want them to get the best possible returns given their risk profile. I, I will say for what it's worth, I would far, far rather people get subpar returns but stick with it for 45 years than get spectacular returns for two years and then give up because they have a bad third year. Yeah. And so there is there is some part of me was like, you know what, if people buy just, a, you know, crappy blue chips that I would never buy because I think they'll lose to the market, and if they get 6% a year in woolies rather than 10% a year in, in stocks, but they do it for 45 yeah. years, they will retire so incredibly rich if they keep adding to it and reinvesting the dividends. It's not going to matter. And yeah. so to some degree, like, yes, I want them to buy the right stocks and I want them to invest the right way and to buy and sell at the right times. But I will say for people out there, whether it's property or shares or anything else, at the very, very least, if you're paying off a mortgage, you are effectively in forced saving. If you are buying shares and reinvesting dividends, just leaving the money there, unless you're buying absolute tripe, you're probably going to do reasonably well, and, I, and I've got to say, like at some level, I, I, I don't want to. I don't want people to give up because they're not beating an index necessarily. Um, yeah. But also, I don't want them to to do stupid things and then and then give up because they get frustrated or sick of it, or they simply aren't built for the long term. Yeah, I think you're 100 percent true with shares. I just think a lot of, and this is one of your points you made there, Veronica. A lot of 87 percent of property investors, that might not be exactly that. I've only bought one property and most of those is because they've stuffed it up, um, hence why they went and bought another one, you know. Um, and, you know, they've had a property that's been going sideways for 15, 20 years mm. right? and they've had maintenance and they've had tenant issues and they've, uh, you know, negative gearing yeah. costs and they've had falls in prices. And um, I think you're a lot more protective with, you know, your philosophy there, Scott. Yeah, if you bought some right. blue chip stocks and you've had them for 15 years, you know, yes, that might not have got as high as the ASX potentially, um, and you might underperform the market, but at least you got a decent return um, by over that longer period in shares versus um, some properties. You know, it'll underperform, but it could go sideways or it could lose money. Yeah, yeah fair enough. Not looking of for bragging yeah. rights. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you've only got a couple of minutes with you, Scott. I mean, I could love to get one final question with you. Uh, this super versus property debate and encouraging <laughs> first-time buyers to access their super. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'd love to get your thoughts on it. I think you might be quite vocal. <laughs> I've been on a very, very long run on this one, Chris, as I'm sure you know, mate. I have a feeling it's a Dorothy Dixon question that I, you've also asked me with not much time <laughs> left. I've got another appointment, so I've got to keep it short and sharp. Smart way to do it, mate. Otherwise, we would have talked about nothing else. Um, <laughs> I I detest the presentation of this as a choice. Um, it, it, when, when the government has a million dials, tools, knobs, switches, uh, policy positions, et cetera, et cetera, 
they could do whatever they wanted to do to address housing affordability and whatever they yes. wanted to do to afford superannuation to set it up. They could do whatever they wanted to do to help consumers and jobs and everything else. When someone, when a politician says to you, you have to make this choice, you know, they don't, they don't say houses or law and order. They don't say super or healthcare, right? <laughs> but they're presenting it as houses or super as in, well, I guess, and it's, it's the, the worst, yeah. you know what's worse is smart politics, right? Because I've had people reply to me and say, well, okay, fine, but at least with housing X or at least with super Y, like yeah, yeah, but it's not a choice. It, like the, you, you are you're falling at the first hurdle with respect to those people because there's, there's, they're swallowing the line. The polys are throwing us hook, line, and sinker, having you know, letting the polys frame the question as, well, right. I guess I've got to choose then. And, and I, I keep on shake these people. So you, you know, don't let them don't let them suck you into this. It's not necessary for housing affordability. Super is not the only answer. It's not even a good answer, let alone let alone the best answer. It is a terrible solution because. At the end of the day, this is not a choice between the two. You should be able to have a house to live in and a, reti- a comfortable retirement. We are the second wealthiest country in the world on median household wealth, and we're saying you've got to choose between a comfortable retirement or a house. I mean, it's just absolute, absolute lunacy. And I think I, I don't want to cast aspersion on the individual politicians because I don't want to get political. And frankly, I just you know I, I do without the grief from from their supporters, you know, from either side, either party. Um, <laughs> But you've got to ask yourself, why the hell would they want to do this? And I can't get past ideology, um, and it just it just stinks. It, it is just it is grossly, grossly irresponsible um, for for a government minister and or backbencher to say you must make this choice. There is no other alternative. Same, by the way, as wages or super. When they say, well, you can't have super increases because yeah, right, it'll hurt yeah. wages. So no, that, that's not the choice. That, that is not the choice in a country like Australia. Between the two, you don't have to make the choice of is it bread now or retirement later. So now how about we actually think about it and have both? That that should be a reasonable answer. And I think if your listeners know, hear anything from me, I'm, I'm ranting now, um, they should know that this, you know, don't let the pollies dictate and frame the choice network or the choice um, mechanism. You can choose more than just one or the other they present you with. That's totally agree, mate. Brilliant. And we're just in time. We've got one minute to get to your next, uh, ah, to your next one. So right. thank you so much, Scott. Really appreciate the invitation, guys. Thanks. Love the podcast. Thanks, See ya. Scott. Thank you. Cheers, mate. So we didn't get a chance to ask Scott about a Dumbo, but Veronica, have you got one for us? <laughs> I've always got Dumbos. Um, I, you know, in the current market, I get asked a lot, have I missed the boat? And because, of course, everything is going gangbusters. And it's like, well, if you weren't ready to buy, um, you know, this time last year, if you weren't ready to buy in the beginning of 2019 or if you weren't ready to buy in 2018, no, you haven't missed the boat because you weren't ready to buy any earlier and now you are and now you've just got to focus on finding the best property you can for your budget and, and getting into the market. But if you were sitting on your hands in all those times I've just mentioned, waiting to see what's going to happen, um, as so many people were, so many people, and, you know, I've had this happen in my business. It's Good Deeds is now 12 years old and I've been in property now for 21 years. The amount of times people will sit on their hands when things, when there's actually good buying opportunities and they just refuse to grab them, they're all waiting to see what's going to happen. Well, those people, yeah, they missed the boat and that's a dumbo. And it's, and the big dumbo isn't so much, oh, you know, they, they didn't take advantage of a good market for buying. It was more the fact, I think the real dumbo point is they think that things aren't going to get better at some point, you know, and if you really have this belief that, oh, that's it, now, property's gone now it's never going to be a good good thing to buy it's never going to go up and get in value it's it's a done forever for the rest of my life you know it's gone 
if you have that belief, then sure, you know, sit on your hands when the market's down. But the reality is it's never done and dusted. You know, sure, some a lot of property is not worth buying. But the fact is that if you're buying in a good area, you're buying a good asset and you're buying a home and you're not sort of trying to game it and all that sort of thing, then really you hold on to it for the long term, you make good decisions, then you're going to be better off in 5, 10, 15, 20 years' time for having bought that property. And it's it's not all over. Do you know what I mean? That's a dumbo. Yeah, I agree. I think the uh, the outcome of not doing something is encouraging people to start to question they should have done something. So they may just go on and not do anything ever again, mm. you know, because they said I should have bought in 2020. I didn't. So I'm never going to buy an investment property. Yeah. Um, that, that definitely I can think could happen. The other thing could happen is that they want to buy in 2021, but they're like, all oh, the good stuff's gone up. So now I'm going to go and buy something that's a bit cheaper. Um, yes. or take advantage of the apartment market or buy a town, townhouse. Um, and so we are seeing that as well where people are like, well, that's already made money. I can't make any more money there. Mm. Um, and so I'm going to go and buy a cheaper asset or something that's not quality. And unfortunately, what we're starting to see is that, you know, you might be seeing it as well, Veronica, the C's and D's. You know, the poorer properties, even in good suburbs and the poorer, say, suburbs are starting to go up as well mm. because there's so much FOMO and so many buyers and so little listings. And so even they're going up and they're not the great longer-term assets. So if you're going to, uh, even though they have gone up quality assets and maybe you have missed the boat, don't then now go and buy a poor asset that you think is going to, you know, be a bit cheaper or hasn't gone up um, because longer-term the opportunity cost will be bigger. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting world we're in at the moment. It is indeed. And, and Scott mentioned it in that chat, you know, about investors getting burnt, you know, those just post the GFC, for instance, or yeah. post COVID, just the immediate, um, uh, time in the beginning of COVID, um, you know, then, and they never return. And with property, you know, with invest, investing in shares and every return, but they probably didn't have that huge amount of skin in the game compared to if they had one property that was really bad and they lost a heap yeah. of money on it. And trying to recover from that is is really, really problematic and some people never do. So in property, they may, it's not, not returning isn't necessarily because they just have been burnt. It's actually because physically, financially, they just can't. So we want you to be a better elephant rider and this week's elephant rider boot camp is over to you, Chris. So, Scott, uh, we had a very brief chat at the end talking around super versus property and what we may see in 2021 is there's a policy that allows first-home buyers to access their superannuation um, to withdraw a certain amount out to help them with their deposit. And knowing that the market's already got lots of demand in there from people who have first-home buyers who have got the deposit, getting money from their parents, um, you've got upgraders, investors are coming back. Um, if you do allow more first-home buyers to get access to the deposit, you're just adding more fuel onto the fire with low listings, um, et cetera. So it's not really at a great stage to allow people to do this, but I think ultimately the problem we have here is that superannuation is really a long, it's, it's got another purpose and that's really to provide you with retirement income in the future. And so, yes, you could be saying that um, it's going to allow them to buy a home, but what you are doing is a huge sort of impact to them longer term, similar to when the government did a bit of a cash grab in the in the COVID crisis and allowed people to take 20000 out of their super. And so I think the problem we have here is that super is not 
it keeps getting fiddled with and it keeps getting changed the rules around that um and it and people aren't having faith with the system because the government are always getting sticky fingers and saying well what could we use that money for and as it goes more and more trillions uh, um that that's going to continue i think if you're a first home buyer you know don't be hanging your sort of bet on that you're going to be able to access your super to say help you save for a home deposit. I'd personally be taking the opportunity of, you know, to save as much as you can, you know, sell your car. Look at these sort of things, um, which we regularly advise our clients to do before potentially just tapping your superannuation to help you with a deposit and hoping that that strategy goes ahead. Um, if it does happen and you're a first home buyer and you think, yeah, great, I might use 10,000 out of my super or 20,000. You have to know that that will probably be factored into prices extremely fast um, and so you're going to burn your superannuation fund because you're going to be paying more for the property because there's going to be more demand. So you've got to be careful what you wish for um, because you might be a first-time buyer saying, yeah, I hope they let us access my super because it's going to help with my deposit. But I think you'll find very quickly that that just pushes prices up more than what you got access to. The same thing with the stamp duty change. Um, you know, if that goes to no stamp duty and land tax, I think you'll very quickly find that prices will jump 5%, which is higher than what you would have just paid for stamp duty. So you just got to be very careful. These policies might be looking to help you, but there's huge costs, whether it's less super or just, you know, having to pay that money anyway in stamp duty. Yeah, there's quite a, there's actually quite a bit of data around that has tracked that um, that effect when there's been certain stimulus measures to help first home buyers and how that's yep. actually pretty much immediately resulted in higher prices in excess of the actual benefit. But if you do want to um, listen up to a bit more on this topic, go back to episode 153 when we interviewed Brendan Coates from the Grattan Institute specifically on the topic of accessing super for home buying um, and you'll find that quite fascinating. Tune in for our next episode and we're talking all about infrastructure. It's the thing that property investment experts love to talk about. Now, we're going right to one of the sources and that is David Tucker, the Chief of Infrastructure Assessment for Infrastructure Australia. Try saying that one quickly. He's joining us and we're talking about the assessment framework for infrastructure projects in this country, what's being recommended, what the priorities are coming up. A very, very interesting episode. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.